Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. Happy New Year, everybody. My guest this week is Larry Fessenden, an actor and filmmaker you've seen in, well, just about everything. If you're a genre fan, you'll surely have caught his 1995 breakout Habit, which he wrote and directed as well as starred in opposite Meredith Snader. He's gone on to carve out a brilliant career as a director of ground-level creepers like Wendigo, The Last Winter, Beneath, and Depraved, while also working as an actor, producer, and distributor. He turns up as the Prophet of Doom in the animated fantasy epic The Spine of Night, in a voice cast that also includes Patton Oswalt, Lucy Lawless, Betty Gabriel, and Joe Manganiello. That's just arrived on VOD, and if you like heavy metal, the movie, you should really check this out. Larry picked The Mist, Frank Darabont's 2007 adaptation of Stephen King's novella about a small town swallowed up by an inexplicable supernatural fog and the handful of people trapped inside a supermarket when it happens. Returning to King Country after the Jim Carrey melodrama The Majestic, Darabont assembles a who's who of character actors, Thomas Jane, Andre Brower, Marcia Gay Harden, Francis Sternhagen, William Sadler, Toby Jones, Laurie Holden, and many more, and sends them through King's story with merciless efficiency. That also leads to what's probably the most controversial ending of any Stephen King adaptation, and yes, we'll get to that. This is someone else's movie. I want to talk about a movie that I love called The Mist, and not everybody likes it, and it's often not cited as a great horror film. It's obviously Stephen King as well, so there's a lot of reasons why it should be on the on the on the list, but. I think it has this troubling ending and maybe there are other things that I don't see, but to me, it has a lot of going for it. So that's my choice. Uh, I will agree with you. The ending is troubling. It, it knocked me out of the movie. I was furious. I think right up until the last 30, maybe 90 seconds of that film, it's the best adaptation of King as yeah. text that I've ever seen. The language is right. The mood is right. This, the kind of shabby suburban exurban thing he does. Um, all the all the high emotional weirdness that goes on in the story yeah. is captured properly. And then, yeah, it felt to me like Darabont was just betraying the entire story by refusing the hope that King leaves us with. Well, fair enough. Uh, to, just to reiterate the reasons I like it, uh, I love the idea of a single setting. Uh, that's something that a lot of independent filmmakers have to contemplate. And um, it's not always a shortcoming. Sometimes it becomes a strength. I also like, you know, Aristotle always said uh, unified time and place. So this takes place almost in real time, basically mm -hmm. 24 hours or something. Uh, I love the deep, deep dread and sense of unknown uh, of what this is. And unlike some movies where they finally explain it and then you feel kind of let down. In fact, there's explanations, but it doesn't overtake the mystery of the movie. You're still left with a sense of awe and, and dread. Um, I like the mystery of the fog. In other words, the treatment of the monsters uh, when they're out in the fog, it's very unknown. At the same time, you get great monster action, really, really weird designs. Yeah. Uh, they're not normal <laughs> designs. There's something because it's a spectrum of creatures. You know, there's sort of these reptilian things that fly. Uh, then there are these giant Lovecraftian things in the mist, and then there's these little insect monster rodent, I don't know, bugs, so spiders, spiders. Uh, and I believe that um, uh, Bernie Wrightson was involved in the design of the creatures, which you know, it, don't, it doesn't get better than Bernie Wrightson. So 
uh, he's he's a classic comic illustrator, uh, wonderful designer. There is King uh, King and Wrightson work together on Creepshow. Um, there's a oh. there is a comic book like an illustrated version of Creepshow that was released alongside the film that Wrightson drew. Um, he did the illustrations for Cycle of a Werewolf. Uh, yeah. The, which which then became Stephen King's Silver Bullet, and yeah, Wrightson's um, Wrightson's imagery and in his influence is something that's you know goes back to Swamp Thing and all of the vague distortions of humanity. Ah, and you've got the Creep Show. Uh, yeah, so that's Bernie, of course. Yeah, I've got it up on the shelf back there too. Um, and yeah, uh, I think the the book's descriptions of the of the the things in the mist are deliberately vague people catch glimpses of them and and you know, i remember the word chitinous coming out a lot to describe something with a carapace i remember the story so vividly wow. um uh god 40 years ago now it must have been i think it was 1981 that it was published in this anthology called dark forces and it was it's basically a short novel it, the thing's over 100 pages long and just an absolute barn burner of a story um and it's got elements of I and mean, it's narrated by the thomas jane character so it's it's got his um, his own, as, as is usual with King, he puts us in the perspective of the absolutely average person who has no training, no background, no expectations, and yep. just watches them survive or not. And that's the thing about the story. It's just a straight line of uh, a man has left. He takes his kid into, into town to buy stuff. Like they go to the market. He takes his, his son to the market, leaves his wife at home. And then the mist comes and everything else is off the table. And yeah, yeah as you say, the isolation, the location specificity of it is just, it's ideal for a story like this. And I appreciate this conversation because you can reference the short story and tell me where Darabont, this is by Frank Darabont, who's mm -hmm. famous for inventing uh, the film version of The Walking Dead, uh, as well as he also did King's non-horror uh, adaptations. Green Shawshank, Mile. yeah. Shawshank. So, so there's Frank Darabont, which is cool also because he has other concerns than just horror, you know, so there's, there's the sense of texture. And, and that's the thing I also wanted to mention. I really like the neighbor who's a black guy, but a well-appointed citizen and uh, actually kind of a prick. So it's not sort of a pandering black character. He's just a lawyer. Uh, he's a city guy and they have conflict that is beyond racism it's it but there's that element so i think that's really interesting how that develops he basically doesn't believe when thomas jane says there's a tentacle monster in the in the garage so that's a really interesting dynamic and then obviously there's also the which i think is an important portrait of where we are in society now um uh, the marcia gay harden plays sort of the evangelical character who starts to overtake the authority um, just through her doomsaying and um, she she gains power in the dynamic in the in the in the whatever the shop where they're all hiding yeah, the and the association that forms around her the um, yeah, yeah mrs carmody in the in the book is someone that I always pictured when I heard Frances Sternhagen had been cast in the film I assumed that's who she was playing that's oh, the, like the sort of character yeah. I thought she would be. But by making it Harden, who's much more vulnerable before she does her turn, um, yes. that really, that displaces a lot of the of the energy of that character. And, and I was really interested in watching that interpretation. His, like, like I said, 
up until that finale, it's perfect. Let's get uh, to the finale. Um, we can get there or we can take our time. I mean, I don't want to rush yeah. through. There's also, uh, I love Toby Jones. He is a, a cherished uh, character actor and his, his, the person he's performing is so appealing. He's, you know, it's that classic, I guess it's classic King. It's just classic storytelling. He's the little schlubby guy, humble, but he's a marksman. And you just love it when he does end up with a gun and he's all sheepish, but then, oh, gee, shucks, I happen to be able to do this. And yeah. it's so appealing. Um, yeah, it's that salt of the earth thing, right? The the kind of person who in the book would always say a yeah or something, some main thing. Yeah, uh, main thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his secret hyper competence. And, and Toby Jones at that time, too, I think I'd just seen him in the Capote movie he made. It was yeah. such a strange call to pick this, this, this English actor who is very good at what he does to play this guy. But again, it destabilizes it, right? It's just something you don't quite expect from the adaptation. That's right. And there's a humility to Darabont's choices in a way that Spielberg also used to cast, like not quite the famous actors, in a yeah. way saying, listen, I'll take care of the, the filmmaking. I'm, I'm really the, uh, the draw here. Uh, I don't think Darabont has that same idea, but uh, I think that he does like working with a stable of actors. And I understand at least that some of the other actors in this movie, The Mist, uh, do show up in, in his ensemble in the, the zombie show. So you can tell that, that he likes to work with actors in that way. Um, the other thing is the younger couple is really quite, quite charming and tragic. Um, you know, the one military guy. Yes, that's right. And, and their little backstory. So there's just a lot of really nicely drawn um, characters. And yes, you were referencing, I guess, did you mean the older woman? Because she's also cool. She's kind of a tough cookie. Mrs. Repler, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, uh, Francis Sternhagen, who, of course, was also in um, in Misery. And I think that's just Darabont oh, screwing okay. with us as well, just quietly yeah. in the background. It's like, yeah, yeah, you reckon you think you know who this person is. Yeah. His, no, his yeah. casting right down the line. It's um, even Alexa Davalos, who was just coming off a season on Angel, I think, around that time, was kind of still relatively unknown young actor as um as sally the the um the babysitter and, and the cashier at the supermarket who just yeah. happens to be there the the other thing too um since we're talking about the way that the supermarket teams fracture is that watching the split happen along david's lines makes perfect sense from the novel because he just quietly aligns himself with the people he already knows and trusts right but here, because we have the external perspective, you get to watch people pick sides, which is really interesting for actors because they're just doing these kind of subtle little indications. Exactly. You know, when when Mrs. Carmody is ranting about the end times, other people have this glint in their eyes, like, yeah, you know, she probably has the right idea here. And this yeah, this sense all of move over to her side as yeah. far as engaging. There's something also pleasing about this film because you can kind of watch the filmmaking because he it is almost a theatrical set. You can see the way he uses staging. Um, yeah, there's something I always like about a movie that is contained because then you can you can see the craftsmanship at work. And, you know, that huge plate glass window and the little nasties that come up against it. Those are scary yeah. to me. Some indelible. There's a lot of horror out there. There's a lot of creature movies. There's something about the way it's filmed and, and the peculiar design of the creatures that really is haunting you know when they just come and they land on the window uh yeah. just terrifying and you know recalls any summer you ever spent with a large mosquito you know yeah. but 
but uh, you know, playing into these fears, uh, I think it's so cool. Yeah, and the the use of I hate to say negative space because that's not really what he's doing, but the sense of the vulnerability of the building, the idea that as yeah. soon as you go out that door, you're probably dead. Yeah, um, <laughs> and and it takes an hour for anyone to leave again, right? I mean, it's shocked into them. We yeah. quickly establish the barricades and the, and the panic and the, and the hunkering down. Then the storeroom isn't safe, so they lose even more space and the sense of threat pressing in on them that by the time they make their little trip to the pharmacy, which is a fucking nightmare. A nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Just awful in every way. Yeah, we're completely invested. And as you say, the creature design is subtly wrong. Yeah. Um, and it's the thing that, Again, King sets it up in the book with David just incapable of describing things. It's the Lovecraft trick. That is but, Lovecraft. So Lovecraft. Right. But when Lovecraft did it, it was always the end of the story because the character, the narrator would inevitably see something and go mad. And yeah, yeah, here, yeah. it's actually like the thing that Thomas Jane does that amazed me the last time I watched. I've only seen it twice, but the last time I watched it was the black and white version that came out on the the oh, nice. Yeah. DVD or the Blu-ray. Darabont said he always wanted to shoot it in black and white and he released the alternate version. I find the color more disturbing just because the colors on the creatures are wrong. I, I totally agree. Uh, the, the whole black and white thing, although I, I admire him for having that feeling, but there's something actually fairly modern about the movie, contemporary. I know what he's getting at because it is like an old 50s horror movie like yeah. them uh, or some of those wonderful movies. Uh, but but it belongs color. And, you know, when they're stacking the, you know, the dog food to protect them, yeah. there's something about all those colors of the labels. that's just very modern and, and suburban and contemporary. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's more disturbing if you root it in reality than, than give it the, the, the exit hatch of, well, this is stylized. It's not really happening. It's far yeah. more terrifying to imagine that it actually is happening to people yeah, who look like us and act like us. And then a couple of things like the, the, the smear of blood when the one, you know, they're pulling the rope. Yeah, yeah. And actually that stuff, I think, plays well in color. So anyway, that's fine. He can have his, I, I have <laughs> the, the, the black and white version. I watched it once. Uh, but yeah. um, uh, one last thing on the casting is even the kid. And, you know, it's hard to cast. That's always, uh, I mean, I think movies can sink or swim on how the young kid is is portrayed you know it's just a matter of casting like for example speaking of king the shining remake which everybody always disparages i i actually don't have a lot of i mean i think it's an, a, a curiosity um nick garris of course directed that and and i like that it's about alcoholism more than well yeah more literally than the nicholson version but yeah the, it's the, the thing that king says he wanted it to be right the, it has the yeah, focus where he so, wants it so I grant that. And, you know, they use the topiary instead of the maze. And so there's certain things about it. But the bottom line is, I'm sorry if if the kid's still alive, but I really didn't like the kid. <laughs> and that's just like, you see, it can really sink or swim a movie, in my opinion, the casting of uh, of the younger kid, because that's where we're supposed to put all our emotions. Anyway, I think in The Mist, it's very successful and a really great uh, character. Yeah, it's um, it's Nathan Gamble, who I hadn't seen much of at the time, but then he went on to make Joe Dante's movie The Hole, and and oh, cool. I don't know that he's acting. Is he is he still working? I can't have this right here. He is still working. He's doing television and stuff. Um, but yeah, in um, in the mist, he is. Yeah, he's he 
He does the thing that you need a child actor to do, which is not go fully catatonic, but still sort of play the emotions. But he also doesn't just collapse into hysteria the way some younger kids do in horror movies. It's Again, it's relatable. I believe that Darabont worked with him. There's a performance there. I think so. And that's what uh, this whole film has a working man's attitude or just vibe. It's like uh, there's an intelligent director getting done what needs doing uh, with a sort of a moral center but also a sense of craft and uh yeah i really uh i like the film uh maybe we should talk about the end you know because i have friends you know real hip friends who would seem to be you know devouring any manner of cynicism at the end of a film and so on and they literally said nah no so it crossed the line for them uh and i'm saying them there was a couple people uh real hardcore friends bands, you know, punk rockers, this and that. And yet oh, yeah. they, they felt this was out of line. I, on the other hand, feel like that's the horror of the movie. I mean, it's as if it isn't enough creatures in the mist and everything. Just he makes a moral decision, which he's absolutely sure is the only way out of this nightmare. And he's wrong. <laughs> it's it's it is it is indeed a betrayal, but um, not in you know, some movies annoy me because they there's an assumption like um, Funny Games by Heineke. Yeah. I really don't agree with his premise that every person who watches a horror movie wants to see harm done to others. So when he winks at the camera, when the bad guy winks at the camera and says, we're going to go kill some more people, why don't you come along? I know you'll enjoy it. I'm very alienated by that. I'm like, no, that is not true. You're accusing me of something that isn't true. I watch horror out of a sense of deep despair and empathy and <laughs> well whatever but it's not to to gloat at the misery of others so i'm just saying there's an example where i'm offended by the film with the miss what can you explain further you just felt it was so mean <laughs> i can we can oh we can absolutely talk it through i but i want to get back to the haneke thing because that's how i felt as well uh, my my feeling on i like about every other one of his films and the ones that show like compassion and concern for characters are the ones that i connect to like cachet yeah. or time of the wolf which frank Rance discussed a, a couple of months back on this podcast uh yeah. especially amour but yeah. it's the ones where he establishes an inevitability and then just goes there yeah. Like both funny games movies, like the white ribbon where it's just like, you know, I feel like he doesn't need me. I don't need to be there. He didn't Good make point. it for an audience. Right. He's his thing about funny games was if the audience stays till the end of the film, he's failed. And I accept that for his conception of what he's doing, but that's not horror for me. I watch, yeah, I watch horror for the kind of the ecstatic release of my own fears and depressions. I want to be able to watch them come out and hurt someone on screen where I know it's all, it's like roller coaster. Nobody's going to yeah. die on this thing really. And I can enjoy the art of it. I can enjoy the, I mean, I enjoy your films because they have this absolute commitment to what if this was really happening? How would people experience this? Right. Right. Um, and I still think you probably made the best Wendigo movie, uh, even though there was another one this year, which was really disappointing. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, but, but it's out there, right? I mean, yeah. you make films about people enduring an, an exceptional experience, which is what The Mist is. Right, right. And not it's, losing their humanity if they're lucky. But what about making the wrong decision? Yeah, well, that my issue with The Mist ending the way it does, I would even accept mm-hmm. the shootings. 
it's the army showing up at the end that bothers me. Not because it proves him wrong, but because this film that has put us in his place for two hours, there's, there has not been any hope. Like there, the whole point of the ending is that there is nowhere else to go. The monsters just keep getting bigger. Right. <laughs> there is there is no point in surviving this world, right? He's already in despair. He has also been given the proof, which is only hinted at in the movie, that his wife didn't make it. Ah, so right? sad. Like that extra blow. In the in the book, it is implied, right. but he doesn't find her. He doesn't find anything. They he mentions that at one point they tried to get back to the house, but it was empty. Um this says nope, it's over, she's gone. And so his despair is completely relatable. Like I understand why David does what he does. And the moment where everyone quietly agrees to it is probably the most disturbing thing. Yeah. Even more so than the actual act, because you just watch this acceptance playing across people. But also let's remember, so there's not a bullet for him. So, Mm. I mean, that's why we do experience the final moral blow. It's really a blow to his, to, to his very core, our core as humans to have some justification in the world. Even if you say there's no God, you're like, you're still, let's admit it. You're still measuring like, well, I did a good deed today. I maybe yeah. get a, something back, you know, or, you know, that guy's bad. Something bad's going to happen. You know, that's just our makeup. Of course. Our storytelling is sort of, uh, and therefore, you know, religion grows out of that. But anyway, um, yeah, so he does all these sort of heroic and terrible things, and he gets out, and it was like, yeah, you didn't need to do that. Everything was going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, brutal. I liked I, it. Yeah, I just it, the only thing I keep thinking of is like the army's not going to stand a chance against the big things. That's it. Like he would just he's just buying himself a little more suffering, and maybe the overwrought no, no, no at the end, which does feel like it comes out of a fifties creature feature or the Twilight Zone. Like it, it seems to be snapped back to a simpler emotional response than the film had previously been going for. Maybe that's it. It just the yeah. idea that uh, Chris Hardwick uh, had a bit about the Twilight Zone and how it should really be called Nice Dry Asshole because no matter what happens, that's where the show is going. Every episode is, you know, that's no matter, pretty- yeah, no matter what you're doing. <laughs> You're not going to win. That's and, a little. Yeah, yeah it's I just that reductive moment at the end, I think, that that pushes me away. The the ultimate one is the guy that amasses all those books and then mm. he brings his glasses and you're yeah. like, nice try, asshole. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know what? There are opticians. You can probably find another pair of glasses. It's not that bad. Thanks, Rod Serling. You know, yeah. let this thing go on another five minutes. He's going to get radiation poisoning anyway, but at least he'll get a good pair of glasses. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, all right, well, yeah, I mean, I, it's just fun to hear any articulation of why that um, really went south for people. And I think you must know the parable that they offered him $100,000 to change the ending. They, meaning the studio. And yeah. he said, this is, this is what I want to do. So that gives it also a sweetness for me. You know, I love that uh, he stuck to his guns. But I, it, it probably cost him at the box office, as they say. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, it was not a, it was not a huge success. I don't think. Um, why I often talk about it. I don't understand. It's to me, it's just everything I like in a horror film, all the things we've been talking about, a uh, single place, single location, fantastic monsters, just so much stuff that I, I really love. So I often cite it in one way or another, uh, just to keep it alive. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's probably the most important thing, anybody can do is uh, whether they like a film or not is to 
keep it in the conversation. And it is, uh, it's sort of neglected among, or it's fallen away anyway, in the, in the list of, of Grand King adaptations. Cause I, uh, right up until that ending, it, I would put it at the top five. It just captures the same way Cronenberg's dead zone does. It captures ah. the the nondescript nature of that world. And then the invasion of the supernatural or the unnatural in a way that King does perfectly. And so many of the other filmmakers just, well, like Cujo, for example, uh, Louis Teague's Cujo, which is just this engine once they get stuck in the garage and uses negative space the same way because the dog jumps up once. And then for the rest of the movie, you are terrified of all the window space. Yeah. Well, I like to say that because some of the, the sort of uh, more humble uh, ones work as well. It's what right. I call sort of working man's uh, filmmaking. Um, and then, of course, The Shining is its own animal and that's sort of almost not part of this conversation. But yeah, The Dead Zone, by the way, I should have mentioned, we should have done that movie. And that's um, just the most wonderful movie I've ever made. Quite yeah. Literally. Yeah. And that's funny because one thing that I noticed in that movie is it's actually about a, a long expanse of time. It's the very opposite of the mist in mm-hmm. terms of the ambition. Uh, and when you watch the movie, that's part of its success is like, wow, I'm going along with this. I'm feeling emotionally very singular, but actually this is years and years are going by. She has children and this and that. And you're like, but somehow I'm still right in the zone, as they say. So that's a yeah. good one. It's the genius of never leaving Christopher Walken's side, I think. He's just so compelling that we just, we can't not wonder what's going to happen next, even though it is an incredibly episodic narrative. Um, Stitching Stilson in the way they do and and making it, making Sarah the central woman in his life because she doesn't come back in the book, really. They they have their reunion, but she doesn't work with Stilson's campaign and she's not like, that's not the reason she shows up on his doorstep. And, And linking those two strands is just really, really smart bit of screenwriting. That's, yeah, it's such a great film. It's wonderful when you see this stuff done well without a bunch of fuss. Um, yeah. Is there a King text that you want to adapt? Is there something that, do you, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you have one in your, in your pocket that you'd love to do if given the opportunity? No, although, you know, I should have an answer to that. But, <laughs> um, it's funny you mention it because somebody once, I mean, this was very brief. We didn't get into it, but I did have a Hollywood producer say you know well it is available uh any yeah. interest i mean this was five ten years ago and uh i don't think i'd read the whole thing so <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't qualified but anyway um i find that too sprawling i would actually find a a, a gem of a shorter piece by king and i'd rather expand out in a film and sort of let let things breathe than uh then tackle his epics that just seems bananas even the shining was more manageable than some of his yeah well in the shining as you say it's it's it doesn't even exist in the conversation it's, it's not a horror film it's just a character study that just goes in and in and in and in and in yeah um though i'll say the reading the shining is terrifying it's so mm-hmm. interesting i mean that's where you realize that king really is uh, a master of his craft he really can be scary you know, there are a lot of quirks where he's using brand names and stuff and making it all very Americana. And that's that's his charm. That's you either like or don't like that. But there's something fundamentally scary in his writing that's really cool when he gets into it. So yeah. he, I think it's the willingness to be overmatched, to let to to just keep writing until the characters have nowhere to go. Yeah. And and push them into that corner. 
part of it is the working class hero thing that he has because he's you know he he came up from almost nothing and reinvented himself completely and still is that kind of weird southerner in the north thing that he has that's never really left him which i which i absolutely love about him yeah um i think you could probably do a really good job with desperation have you read that no, I, I'll, I'll write it down. That's cool. uh, So there were two books published back to back. One was under the Richard Bachman name. Um, that was The Regulators, but The De- Desperation was the one that was the King novel. And it's a, it's a fever dream. It's, you know, strangers come into the wrong town and there's a crazy sheriff who's also probably a monster. But the, the escalation of the story and the descent of it that strikes me as something that you'd probably really like. I think you'd, I think you'd really love it. Oh, that's really fun. What what a blast. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I usually do uh, at this at this point in the conversation is circle it back to your own work. We are ostensibly talking about this because of the spine of night. And I don't see a real connection in subject matter. That doesn't feel I mean, it's it feels like a movie Stephen King would love, but not a book that he would write. No, I agree. It is uh it's this other vernacular. But spine of night, you know, I've been saying that what, what I love about it is just the tactile nature, the true independent, you know, there's obviously a, there's a whole machine in Hollywood making fantasy films, but there's still room for this more gritty off kilter um, and to some degree, nostalgic uh, take on, on fantasy. And I think that's what we get with uh, a more independent minded film. And these guys just really did it their way and and they took the time to do it and also even the animation style is not on a on a hollywood schedule it's uh, it's handcrafted so all of those things give a movie uh, a different personality and that's why it's it's so exciting to uh, to have this come out and to have been a part of it you know i'm really just a voice in one sequence but uh, i had a blast it's always great to be called in for an unusual project that you feel in some way belongs on the, on the, the shelf of, well, you understand about shelves. Not everybody, the kids don't anymore, but my idea is that the movies you like are on the shelf, uh, like, uh, like the mist. And then, uh, and then the movies that, that you make yourself and are lucky enough to get to physical media. Yeah. I have your box set over here, um, over here somewhere. Let me show you. Oh, well, I appreciate it. All I think of when I think of the box set is like the one Amazon review where the guy's like, why would you ever make a box set with this, this clown? And, you know, that's all I can think about my poor little box set, which is actually a very uh, heartfelt offering, but uh, <laughs> it's decades of work. Jesus Christ. What's wrong with people? Well, it's just funny what, I mean, you know, people like the schlockiest stuff. They like all kinds of stuff. I'm like, can I just be like two, but no, apparently not. <laughs> And yet your stuff comes up when people talk about the sort of movies they want to see people making, right? Like I've, I've definitely had that conversation and, and to that end in a weird way, I usually close the podcast by asking what of the film in under discussion uh, have you borrowed or lifted or stolen? It's like, I don't know that it really applies here because you don't make movies like this, but beneath kind of has a, a raft vibe. Like a, there's a, there's a little King thing there going on. Well, absolutely. I think that's maligned unnecessarily. I don't know. And it's funny because it was the first movie that came out when uh, social media had took hold. So Mm -hmm. I was barely out of the theater. It was at a a film festival and they were already tweeting about how terrible it was. So I never had any pleasure in 
in sort of enjoying that movie. Uh, I didn't write it, but I rewrote it. I mean, so people who want to give me a pass and say it's not really my movie, it's like, look, I take responsibility for it. What I think it is is a satire about a complete inability to get along between five people who are clearly facing a, a terrible uh, hardship. And to me, that's it. That's our Congress. That's our governance now. I mean, it's a satire about how idiotic humanity has become when there's climate change right outside the window. And yet we're all just going to bitch at each other. And we have these resentments to each other. So that was I thought it was funny. Uh, and, you know, I understand it's a rubber fish, but that's also fun. So I defend that movie. But clearly that didn't go over too well. <laughs> I mean, the rubber fish is still going to kill you. It doesn't matter if it looks silly. I think that's something else that people don't think about in these monster movies. Well, that's right. I didn't design something that was supposed to. It's just supposed to be weird. I mean, it's kind of back to the the mist, the (laughs) old creature designs. Also, people would be like, oh, you you can see the shore. You could swim over there. I'm like, if there's a great white shark in the water, are you really going to even dip your toe in? So I don't understand where this, it's kind of where, and I guess it's always been there, but this kind of armchair uh, attitude from film goers, because they can just see it all and they know how everything's done. And there's just a little smugness from the viewer. Now I come from the school where you could, you could see the zipper on the side of the creature and you'd still go, this is so cool. (laughs) Yeah. We're both old enough to remember those like practical effects being uh, covered up with shadows or darkness or, or things like that. And it was part of the bargain you made. Well, you know, and yeah, you had to participate in sort of the creating of the of the experience. It wasn't just all they're going to be there for you and you merely judge where it's, whether it's realistic or not. It's like, was I transported? You know, there's that movie, uh, It, The Terror from Beyond Space, which yeah. is really a precursor and anyone who doubts it should watch it, uh, to Alien. Yep. And it, this is a silliest rubber suit, but there's some real dread and atmosphere in that movie. Some folks stuck in a in a spaceship and they're dealing with this monster in the bottom of the hold who's slowly making his way up to them. It's a great movie and really fun to watch knowing uh, Alien. Yeah, it's so strange watching this new era of CG where literally anything is possible and people are watching it with their phones nearby and distracted. Somebody just, um, a, a, a Hollywood awards blogger and former reputable journalist has been saying, he's been complaining that the ending of the power of the dog comes out of nowhere when it's pretty clearly set up. I mean, it's like Chekhov's anthrax and all that. Uh, wow. And what it is, is put your goddamn phone down. Just, if, you know, if you watch the film, you get it because it's right there. It's not that movies are developing weird plot holes or elliptical storytelling choices. It's yeah. that people aren't paying attention. Oh, dude, that is so profound. And it's funny because, you know, I don't know, as a filmmaker, I sit down, I give a lot of thought to what I'm doing. And, you know, there are little threads and you're like, oh, I hope they notice this. And you realize, no, they're not going to notice that. (laughs) It's really absurd. It is. It's heartbreaking, too, because I still, you know, when it works, it's rapture. When you lose yourself in a movie, in a narrative, it's the best feeling of all. I, I watched The Souvenir Part Two a month ago and was just in tears at it because of the, I think the total immersion in the story in a life in the filmmaker and all of it. And, you know, good luck getting people to watch that at home without being distracted by something. Yeah. It's really a, it's profound. You know, we have these gifts and we just sort of let them go at meaning, you know, the gift of of cinema and, uh, and so many other things. 
and all in the service of what? I mean, you see in your personal life when you tend towards, I don't know, for some people, it's little sweets. For others of us, it's too many drinks. But, you know, how how you let yourself go to the easier thing and uh, and just lose track of sort of the engagement with life that's actually more rewarding, like going to a museum, <laughs> you know, or whatever you had to do as a kid. And uh, suddenly you're like, you know what? At the time I was complaining, but it, it had a resonance. So sometimes you got to do a little, little extra work. <laughs> yeah. Well, with any luck, people will find the spine of night and watch it from beginning to end. People will find the mist. Uh, and as a result of this, hopefully people will, I mean, I'm willing to take a look at it again. I still don't agree with the ending, but I think it's mostly because of how devoted I am to the short story, to the novella and how well, the message of hope is so is like essential. Yeah. And I didn't have that. Uh, that's another type of betrayal. You know, there's a funny thing in one floor of the cuckoo's nest in the movie, the chief says, ah, juicy fruit. And McMurphy goes, oh my God, that's just, it's, oh my God, you, you're amazing. You're amazing. In the book, McMurphy knows that the Indian can talk. And that's a really profound shift. It works yeah. in the movie because it's kind of like, it's almost like the Hitchcock thing. If, if you know there's a bomb under the table, you're in suspense the whole time. If the bomb blows up, it's, it's a shock. Similarly, if we shockingly learn that the Indian could talk, you're like, oh, wow, that was a thrill. But if, if McMurphy knew the whole time, it speaks about his insight. And that's a, a, a sweeter revelation. My thanks to Larry Fessenden, who is having just the best time as the voice of the Prophet of Doom in the animated fantasy epic The Spine of Night, which you can find on demand pretty much everywhere now. I'd also suggest you check out Larry opposite Barbara Crampton in Jacob's Wife, which is streaming on Shudder. It's a blast. Thanks also to Annie Jeeves. She knows what she did. You can find Larry on Twitter under his distribution handle, Class I Picks, all one word, picks with an X, and while the Blu-rays and DVDs of The Mist have gone out of print, the movie's available to stream on Shudder and Super Channel in Canada, and on most VOD platforms in the U.S. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday. This week, we actually talked to friend of the show, Andrew Fung, about his new television series, Run the Burbs. And I write about movies and television, of course. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.